I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And what does it mean to be vulnerable at scale? To go out on a limb and lay bare not just one's opinions, but the private details of a life. The most effective political writing often exists at the intersection of quantitative data and personal anecdote. A writer's argument, if it is to convince, must accurately speak to the external reality we all share, while inviting us to understand the author's internal experience that provides the emotional anchor. Our guest this week has gathered his essays from the last 31 years, a record of joys, sorrows, missteps, and victories, all written down in public. Andrew Sullivan is one of today's most provocative social and political commentators. A former editor of The New Republic, he was the founding editor of The Daily Dish and has been a regular writer for The New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, Time, Newsweek, New York Magazine, The Sunday Times, and now The Weekly Dish. He lives in Washington, D.C. and Provincetown, Massachusetts. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Well, you're very welcome. In the introduction to your essay collection, Out on a Limb, you remark on how you chose what to include. Quote, my criteria for inclusion were pieces that still might have something vivid and memorable to say. Essays that captured a particular moment in time, a wide diversity of topics, and a record that helps explain the consistency of my own philosophical small c conservatism that has guided me all this time, end quote. But to tap into your long relationship with Catholicism, what is excluded is as important as what is included. I mean, the Bible we know today is the Bible also because it does not contain the Apocrypha. So how did you decide what to let fall away from this collection? Well, a huge amount. I mean, the thing that really staggered me and was horrifying really was to come to terms with the sheer magnitude of the amount I've written, the sheer number of words. And so the research of this was immensely difficult, and I couldn't have done it without several interns and friends and colleagues helping me sift through it all. I think I left behind the more instant punditry, the least insightful, the more dated. And in a couple of examples, mainly the Iraq war, I wasn't going to republish some of the stuff that had been passionately in favor of it, because I don't want that to be what I put out there now. But insofar as I am accountable for it, I included the essay, I was wrong, and what I got wrong about Iraq. And that was the way of dealing with that. The very last minute decision was to remove the piece on the extraordinary story of Sarah Palin's fifth pregnancy, because even though I still think the arguments I made are completely valid, what's the point of rehashing that? And what's the point of creating that? stirring up that hornet's nest again. So that was my only act of actual cowardice, I think, in the interests of prudence and in the interests of just not kicking a hornet's nest when it's really not that interesting to kick it anymore. So those are the two main things that I left out. But most of my, what I think with essays that offered an insight into how I see the world as opposed to just being a, a hack were the ones I wanted to retain and also to show to some extent, I think, what I hope is actual some real consistency over the years rooted in a certain kind of moderate conservatism that 
that's really about a defense of the liberal order as a conservative value. And so I think when I've been called so many different things and also described as someone who changed their minds massively all the time and in constant, which are, I think, not very enlightened takes on what I was doing, this chronological account of my writing helps people see, if they want to, just how internally consistent I think I was and am, and how in the one glaring example in which I got things wrong, violated that consistency with respect to the war in Iraq. Something that you just said really stood out to me, quote, defense of the liberal order as a conservative value. And I think that's so well said. I think you might have a career as a writer, if you. <laughs> but that's such a, a, it's an amazing phrase. Well, that's the Oakshotian synthesis, really. I mean, I've always been a conservative in, in many, many ways. I love and loved the traditions of my native country. I believed in its historic past and its uniqueness. I was a patriot. I'm a patriot for England and for Britain. And I'm also a Catholic that sticks to essentially a, a way of thinking that the secular society is essentially abandoned. I'm not really that interested in remaking society in some kind of systemic image. And so at the same time, being conservative in modernity can lead you into two directions, I think. And one of them is an attempt to keep an old order going, even though it's obviously lost its legitimacy or indeed its popularity or indeed its, its continuity with new generations. That is what Burke would say would be a violation of conservatism because the point is not to prevent all change. The point is to make sure that the change that we need to make because human societies are so dynamic and organic and dramatic has to be done carefully and with an understanding of the possibility of unintended consequences and with the goal of keeping the society in one piece. And that means not just in terms of defense, but in terms of the cohesion and coherence and meaning of community that needs to be attended to at all times for fear, especially in the modern world where dramatic ideological changes can be brought in to drastically overdo certain pragmatic reforms. And Oakshot, I think, was the first person that I came across that had a conservative sensibility, but that sensibility really was about loving the unique character of a modern European state in, that had evolved in the last few centuries to create the possibility of individual character, personality, freedom, dignity that did not force citizens into one particular direction or another, that allowed people to pick and choose how they wanted to live their lives and generated virtues that allowed one to tolerate others in pursuing very different aims than your own. And what he saw was that, I think certainly in the mid-century, the socialism and social democracy and the aspirations of the managerial revolution and the attempt to systematize a government and to control the economy, for example, and to direct the culture and to have its plans imposed in the way that it was in Britain in the 40s and 50s in ways that were really quite dramatically changed. So his conservatism was honed in response to socialism and the socialist and leftist project of the post-war period. Today it will be somewhat different, I think, again, and I don't think Oakshot will be against this, uh, because it, it just depends what is the biggest threat at any particular moment 
to that fragile political order that is liberalism. And it is an achievement. It's an historic achievement. And also for Oakshot, it is a absolutely concrete achievement, which means that it has been achieved in a in a really profound way. It's altered the culture. It's, it's it penetrated people's minds. It's created out of a panoply of existing laws and traditions. And therefore, as that kind of system needs defense. And he's argument is that that defense really is a conservatism because it's it's attempting to protect something, to stop something from changing or to arrest its the speed with which it's changing. I think you can see his kind of conservatism defending liberalism through and against different foes. And I think that could be also, for example, neoconservatism as a, a form of ideology that Oakeshott resisted. And also a conservatism that, an intellectual conservatism that really takes politics first as opposed to the universe first. In other words, it seems to be entirely rooted in a rather short-term and shallow material politics as opposed to a view of the entire world and universe from which this particular tradition might spring. In other words, he was not, he was a philosopher of politics, but he was not a political philosopher. Which is why, although he was understood to be a conservative, and I think he's, it's right to, it's not easily defined that way. And a liberal as much as a conservative, and a conservative in a defense of liberalism. That's how I see myself. I don't want to go back to a perfect order in which meaning was singular and everyone made sense in that way. I just don't think you can reconstitute a pre-modern or indeed an anti-modern construct without incredible abuse to the framework of laws and customs we already have. And also because people do not believe it, and it will not be able to be reimposed. And if it, they try, it's going to be done by force. Equally, I don't want to see the kind of woke nirvana, which also requires imposition on people permanently, because human nature is what this politics wishes to change. And so we'll always be in conflict with individual human beings and their choices. So that's how I see it. It's a conservative defense of liberalism, which puts me <laughs> epistemologically in an interesting place because it's also a kind of defense of liberalism that is sort of late Rawlsian, which is that it's not making any major ontological or metaphysical claims. It's making a claim about the nature of politics and the limits of it and the historical contingency of it. So it's not in that sense, even though it's rooted in a big view of the world, it is not in that sense because everything has to be, it is not in that sense an ideology. I'm trying to summarize a lot of sort of Oakshadian thought and ideas about this. Of course. I think what makes that view of conservatism a difficult pitch in our modern era, and perhaps a difficult pitch for a long time, but especially in the 21st century when we are more obsessed than ever with the idea of constant progress, change for the sake of change, growth, you know, endless growth. Uh, an economy is only working if it's growing. A population is only working if it's growing, et cetera, et cetera. And especially with the advent of the internet and our shorter attention spans, I think what worries me, Andrew, deeply is that the conservatism that you articulate here, that I think is vital for preserving liberalism as a counterbalance, right, to endless ignore Chesterton's fence leftism that just, you know, destroy the fence, who cares why it's there, et cetera, et cetera, right? If I'm to caricature the other side, as the left often caricatures the right, how does one pitch that small c conservatism, the idea of preserving something, right? 
not only in an era in which we seem obsessed with ever-increasing change, but that we see any kind of, I guess, maintaining of the status quo as oppressive, right? Because to play devil's advocate, and then I'll toss the ball back to you, one could say, well, you know, what kind of society are we trying to preserve? Is it the pre-1965 heart seller America in which immigrants were restricted, right? I mean, obviously, this is a caricature, right? But I think what someone could point to is like, well, if we look back at history of, of all the things we have changed, and perhaps this is a myopic view, a lot of the changes that have been brought about have been good. So how do we articulate when change is bad? And how do we articulate what to preserve? I think you're wrong about where human nature is right now in the West or where our sensibility is. I don't think most people, most normie people, think America is such a hellhole that it requires massive overhaul. I just don't think they think that because I don't think there's a good reason to think that. Because I think a lot of people, here's what I would say. If this is, if this is an oppressive society, it is the least repressive in all of human history, which might give you a little inkling as to its achievement and the lack of perspective in terms of those that want to overhaul everything on the grounds of racial justice or whatever kind of justice. We're a profoundly certainly by historical standards, tolerant society that in most of our everyday interactions, the overwhelming majority are civil and peaceful. We're a dynamic economy, that there are plenty of opportunities for countless people from all groups in society if people are prepared to do the things that are necessary, which are not always easy, to make a life for yourself. So I don't regard and this is, they will get incredibly mad at me for this, but I'm not, I don't regard our society as something so unjust that it requires a massive overhaul. I do think that capitalism in a way, in late high-tech post-industrial capitalism in a much more aggressive way, has evolved in ways that has distorted our social compact, and that requires addressing. That's why I'm much more sympathetic to redistribution at this point than most ideological conservatives would be. And I think there are many ways in which you say it. For example, most people don't want the curriculum in their high schools to be turned into a neo-Marxist seminar for their children. They don't want all the nostrums of Ivy League colleges pushed into the brains of their kids, and they are resisting it. And I think that's a real, in some ways, you know, the conservative can be bad in as much as if you look at if, if nimbyism is a form of conservatism, then it too is, is bad. I don't think people want to see their environment destroyed. Uh, if they could be shown how to protect it and preserve it, they would. I think that people instinctively, for example, believe in the nation state and its values and don't want to see it completely trashed. That's why you have a real movement to prevent mass immigration in most of the Western countries, because people like the way it is and do not want to see it dramatically altered, which then is described, of course, as fascistic when it's not. It's entirely defensive in terms of culture, that is. Or I look at a place like Britain and I see that despite massive elite pressure, the people of Britain narrowly decided that actually their history and psyche and identity could not be sustained and retain its intrinsic nature if it were merely a province of a European superstate. 
that even it might cost economically and to some extent with inconveniences, the sense of the country as a nation state, as a sovereign state, dedicated to the inhabitants of that island, was very potent and still is potent. And in fact, it's getting more potent across Europe as the kind of demographic change and cultural change and technological change provide this triple whammy for people's sense of security. I'm not as pessimistic as you are. I think put well, this kind of politics can be can be achieved. I also think this kind of politics is also a function, and this is why it's also not an ideology, of the character and temperament of the people in charge. In other words, I made, and in the book have made, a, what I hope is a really solid argument that Obama, for example, was a rather Oakshottian conservative in as much as he was really quite modest in what he wanted to change, even though he was presented with an emergency. And the left's critique of him now was that he didn't, in this emergency, use that emergency to completely overhaul the entire society. Well, was Obama part of this politics? I think it was. He was. That's why I, I warmed him, because I think he wasn't only just temperamentally a conservative. I think he was able to bring many hardcore conservatives, particularly, for example, in the Midwest, to accept the evolving multicultural nature of the society, and was able to appeal to the, some of the rising segments while going out of his way not to alienate the others and to bring them into the argument too. And, and so I think when you have a two-term president in the 21st century who exemplifies this kind of moderate reformism, I don't see where your pessimism comes from. It wasn't that long ago that that happened. So I would say to you, Jonathan, I don't think it's as grim quite as you put it. We, we are lacking certainly in this country at this point in the conservative movement or in the Republican Party, certainly any kind of, even the beginnings of a hint of this sensibility. But that's because it's utterly populist now and demagoguery and feeling and the mindset of a cult, not a political party. And that's something, you know, that's particularly American in its etiology and absolutely anathema to any conservative idea of how you govern a society. Well, I'm not pessimistic about the average American. I think the average American is good. I rarely use broad moral judgments like good and bad. But I think on average, the average American is a decent human being who embraces change, but not too quickly. I think like any you know normal person in what we call the West. I think where I am pessimistic, though, is our leadership, or rather a lack thereof. When you talk about Obama from nine years ago, plus he was more conservative than I think a lot of Republicans ever gave him credit for because they refused to give him credit for anything. And I think in the way that you just articulated, he is now cast as not being radical enough. But I think one, he, as you said, he was the perfect president for a changing United States and that he was able to articulate why change was good within the wider project and traditions of America. But I think when I look at the left today, I see a party or an ideology that is obsessed with change for the sake of it. But then when I look to the right at Republicans, I have no idea what they're for. They're either kind of obsessed with a cult-like ideology of Trumpism, or they just want to say no for the sake of saying no. So I'm not pessimistic with the average American, liberal or conservative, but I am pessimistic about our lack of leadership and our inability of either side to articulate an American tradition that connects with me. And that I am pessimistic about. Well, maybe that project is extremely hard at this point, partly because of the speed 
and intensity of the change. It's bewildering. And on the other hand, we have been through periods of bewildering change before, so we should be able to handle this. I think, obviously, certain things have undermined the liberal project. Identity politics has deeply done so because at its root, it simply finds, and this is what happens in you know, late, what I would call late-stage democracies, is it finds any sort of inequality as absolutely appalling. It does not like the sense that some people achieve more than others. It doesn't like the fact that some people get rewarded more than others. It's profoundly hostile to inequality, whereas a conservative will be much more tolerant of it because a conservative will understand that that's the way human society is, that we are of different abilities. And that, in fact, it's better if we all get the chance to explore what we can do and especially to let the able do what they can do and help us move forward in society than to level down everybody to the same level. I doubt you'd ever want to run for public office, but I can't find anyone on the conservative side, right, or the left, who is really able to articulate something so fundamental to liberalism, which you just did, which is thinly slicing the difference between wanting people to have what we call equal opportunity, right? The ability to change their stars, as former guest Catherine Burble Singh from the UK has said on the show, with being able to be okay if outcomes are unequal, right? And that unequal outcomes are not always a reflection of a wider systemic inequality, although they can be. But why is it so hard to find? And perhaps this is more of a philosophical question, Andrew, but... Yeah, because essentially there's a rhetorical advantage which tends to come down to, so, well, this is, you know, you can see it in Keynesian, really, which is anything that leads to any unequal outcome is itself a function of evil. Right. And constructed on the notion, deep down, of a complete blank slate in terms of human nature and human capacity. If there's not a blank slate, if, in fact, there are considerable genetic advantages to individuals who, I mean, some people are born in certain ways, other people have different skill sets, they're going to achieve different results and maybe different incomes depending upon what that society wants and values in terms of the market. So, but I would say this, that the evidence, the actual empirical evidence supporting the complete irreducibility of inequality is growing. That if you look intellectually, I mean, compared to say the 50s or 60s, our understanding of the evolutionary origins of humans, our understanding of our psychology, our understanding of our different kinds of intelligence, the understanding of the brain and the genome, all of this has added a huge amount of heft to the conservative position, which is that whether we like it or not, this is the world we live in. And We can either be comfortable in that world of inequality or we can rage permanently against all of it in a way that might temporarily give people some sense of meaning, which is ultimately incredibly self-defeating and frustrating and psychologically crushing because you're trying an impossible task. And that's why they increasingly attempt to force it because they have to force it. Right. And they now have to force it in ways that are so unbelievably crude that people will eventually respond, or those institutions that do it will suffer to such an extent that they'll have to adapt. I mean, this is the thing about, if you really believe in reality, 
you know that reality is going to win. The question for the conservatives is always, at what cost temporarily? What, whose lives are going to be ruined by this utopian experiment? I mean, how many, for example, young, smart, African-American kids are going to be cut off from the potential of doing well in society because leftists have decided to abolish their ability to get into good schools through using SATs and IQ tests. That's the toll. It's an invisible toll, but it's there. Again, I think you could make this argument, you can make this argument, but you have to be comfortable with a certain kind of liberalism. And there is certain that tradition within conservatism, within American conservatism. And I also don't think Americans really want the government to be that much bigger than it currently is. That's why you're seeing some resistance to the Biden package in the Congress. I think vast majorities would like us to have a stable immigration policy and an enforceable border. You can't tell what talent is going to show up politically, but also we can do things culturally. And I, I, do, I think, for example, over the last year and a half, as a small vanguard of us really refused to take this social justice revolution purely on the chin, we have moved the public debate quite significantly away from the hysteria of, say, the summer of 2020, even in the last 12 to 14 months. And I think in, even though the media has been captured, essentially, institutionally by some of these forces, the antibodies are everywhere. And Substack is thriving because it's what people want to read. Right. I get very bleak, too, at times. <laughs> I can't seem to get through to people I care about and respect. And I think that so much of the debate is being frozen by the accusation that engaging in that debate is itself a racist or homophobic or transphobic position. It isn't. Right. But they will try and make it that way because it's the easiest, simplest way to fight back. And it's the easiest, simplest way to deter other people making the argument. So you're a transphobe, even though you're absolutely fucking not, <laughs> even though your arguments actually are pretty solid in terms of science and in terms of politics, in terms of human behavior. So I, I refuse to be that depressed about it. As long as we have the First Amendment in this country, there is hope. Yes. And we also know that the general public doesn't like this shit. They don't. <laughs> And, I mean, we'll see next week. The, the Virginia governor race will be fascinating. I mean, if, mm. in fact, the attempt to bring the concepts of critical race theory into the classrooms of children creates a backlash that really knocks the Democrats for six, they may begin to recalibrate. Equally, look at, for example, defund the police. Has any massive political movement been discredited, disproven, and reversed in such a swift period of time because of reality. Mm. Now, the reality in that case are thousands of dead African Americans that, because of that utopian dream, in my view. But is that movement strong? No. Is it losing? Yes. Are there places where it's winning going down the drain? Yes. Patience. This stuff will reveal itself to be fraudulent, just as the attempts to coerce this ideology are going to have to be more and more aggressive because the intellectual opposition becomes more and more assertive. At some point, they're, and they're already doing it, overplaying their hand. They can get away with it in the short term, 
But in the long term, I'm not sure they can because it's so ugly in and of itself that it will discredit itself. It's already discredited itself. One thing, and I, I want to get back to your collection of essays, which is the, the point of our original conversation. But I, yes, before, it, everyone, read it, buy it, of course, please. Yes, please do. It's wonderful. But I do want to just address one thread that you had in there, which I, I think is so important, right? Two things, I think. One, when we talk about equality, we oftentimes don't frame it in the terms of like what our preferred predilection or disposition is, right? In terms of I feel like I'm probably a fairly intelligent guy, but I hate math and I, I don't enjoy studying science really. My brain just isn't, for better or worse, whether it's just not wired that way, I don't have the attention span for it. I like the arts and humanities. It's where I just naturally drift towards. I enjoy it. I like writing and talking to people. I work in advertising, right? So I have no desire to go into STEM. I have no desire to go to Silicon Valley. And I'm sure they're making really good money over there, <laughs> you know, money that I'm sure I would enjoy, but I would hate it. And so I think that, and this is part of the kind of defund the police thing, Andrew, is that what I loathe about our high level national conversations about these topics is that they're so one dimensional that they don't allow us to articulate deeper and I think fuller conversations about these issues, right? I think if you pulled a lot of Americans, the average American we're talking about here, they want better police. They don't want police to abuse people. My dad, over the course of last year, and we have cops in our family, but he went through this spree where he was just watching cell phone videos of citizens being either physically abused or verbally abused by cops who were abusing their badge. And he became very enraged by it, even being, on average, pro-police. I don't think anyone wants bad police. But when we go to defund the police as the response to that, it just narrows our ability to have nuanced conversations. So whether it's about equal outcomes or defunding the police, our conversations are so detached from what the average American wants to talk about. And it's just, anyway, <laughs> I don't want to get so pessimistic here, but it, it's so frustrating. Yes, look at the campaign for the mayor of New York City. Right, yes. They are making arguments. Adams is in the sweet spot that you describe. Yes. Which is wanting more but better police. And obviously, yes. But the two are important, obviously. And then you have a deeper issue, which is that how do you attract the right kind of person to be a cop? Yes. And what are the class origins of that? And who do you recruit? And how do you train out of them ordinary human instincts? Yes. And how effectively can you do that? In what are incredibly dangerous situations, in certain, not in most cases, but in some cases, really dangerous and difficult situations. I mean, it's not easy policing the inner city. Yeah, there are bigger issues here. But again, most people, are. when we've seen this murder spike, which is being attributed to anything but the collapse of police morale and withdrawal of high anti-crime units, which would strike one as the obvious, most proximate reason for this. It's not necessarily the only one, but it's definitely an incredibly central one, it seems to me, then there's hope, absolutely hope. Similarly, I think even on something like climate change, mm. I think the possibility of technological breakthrough is somewhere, something that Americans could get into more passionately than controlling things. Americans essentially like to create and engage in new ventures in tackling difficult problems. They kind of don't like the idea of the government coming in and controlling everything to try and do that. So there's a way to talk about climate change, for example, and resisting it in ways that are very conservative, 
in both in the defense of our environment as we have loved it and known it, our entire planet as we have loved it and known it for so long, along with a sense that this is a challenge, an intellectual challenge, and which Americans are actually engaging in. We are creating innovative technologies to try and restrain the power of carbon and destroying our environment. And that is happening slowly. It may not be happening quickly enough, but it is happening. Now, to get back to Out on a Limb, I do have to cop to something, which is that before reading your essay collection, my familiarity with your work was much more recent and I think as a result, a little thinner. I think I first became aware of you during a television appearance sometime within the last decade, probably maybe seven, eight years, I think on Real Time with Bill Maher. I'd read your work in New York Magazine and Weekly Dish, but Out on a Limb was my first, I think, time encountering a fuller body of your work. And I think what really connected me, if I'm being just completely honest here, wasn't just your political commentary, but your ability to be vulnerable in discussing emotional and psychic pain. That's a lot of what drives my work as a writer, drives this podcast. Your 1994 essay, Alone Again Naturally, about your youthful internal struggle to simultaneously be gay and Catholic, was a real standout for me. I wasn't Catholic growing up. I was Protestant. But I really connected with how you tried to make two parts of yourself into a cohesive whole. And I think people can really underappreciate how difficult it is to be truly vulnerable. I mean, you know, I go to therapy. And oftentimes, I can struggle to be vulnerable with my therapist, let alone millions of people. So if we were to go back 35 years, do you recall what it was like being so emotionally vulnerable for the first time in a public magazine? I think anybody who who came out, for example, in the 1980s, at the beginning of their life, made themselves vulnerable. And certainly, if you were, and then to add to that, the actual articulation of certain ideas and arguments as to why this particular stigma and system of active discrimination against gay people was wrong and how to think forward and how we can resolve that. I think vulnerability was just, it was either that or cocoon yourself in safety and watch events unfold around you that were probably the most important events for homosexuals in many, many years and have done nothing. I am vulnerable. I mean, I, the wounds I got from my fellow homosexuals in those arguments in the 80s and 90s, both about the nature of gay politics, which is that I was opposed, deeply opposed to gay radicalism and believed it was counterproductive, meant that, especially in an era of immense death, I was brutalized. I mean, I'll be very honest with you, I was psychologically brutalized by it. To have your HIV status, for example, banded around as a, you know, an argument to discredit or, God help me, actually, <laughs> evoke pity, that was inevitably vulnerable. But you have one life. Sometimes the act of making oneself vulnerable is what actually, as opposed to making oneself look super strong, is what changes people's minds and hearts. I think gay men in the 80s and 90s, in the hundreds of thousands of deaths, their vulnerability, intense vulnerability, changed the world. I'm a Christian. I believe in the core Christian view that there is a paradox at the heart of human life and that those who seek to be first will be last and that the God we worship is a victim of torture 
vulnerability is, and it's difficult. I mean, I hit give you a simple example. When I wrote Virtually Normal, it's an argument. It's an airtight argument, I hoped, for marriage equality. And I think it really does hold up in terms of its argumentation. So I wrote the argument. Then I went out. It was a New Year's, and I went out to a rave party, and I did a bunch of MDMA, which was developed in therapy, but allowed myself to realize what I had not put into that book, which is why I was writing this at all. What was my life? I was a homosexual. I am a homosexual. So I had not put that in. And so I wrote an introduction and then a conclusion, an epilogue, that brought that human vulnerability into play. I didn't want to, and this is the key, I did not want in any way to use my vulnerability as an emotional blackmail. I wanted to win the argument on its merits. That's why you can read all this stuff, and I, don't, I hope I don't evince much self-pity through any of this. Not at all. Just clarity, I hoped, and honesty, I hoped. And a belief in the liberal idea that argument really can change minds. And the Catholic argument that someone's open heart is really the only thing that will open anybody else's hearts. And if you don't mind losing control of your life, really, if you don't mind being a sort of corpus to be picked on, then it's okay. You can get through it. And look, I also thought I was going to die. And I was watching my friends die. Virtue Normal has in its little note to myself in its preface, it's dated the date of my seroconversion to HIV, which is no one need know but me, to tell me why I wrote this. Remember why I wrote this, because I wrote it because I thought it might be the last thing I could write. And I would also say this, the vulnerability does not necessarily mean weakness. Again, that's the Christian paradox. Mm -hmm. It doesn't. Look at the civil rights movement. It was their ability to be vulnerable to those dogs and hoses and bigots that ultimately shifted the hearts of a country. And that's why the current movement in defense of people who are in minorities, which is so aggressive and angry and self-righteous and full of emotional blackmail and refusal to engage in actual arguments in good faith is so poisonous to me. It's why I despise it so deeply and why I've opposed it my whole adult life. This is the most poisonous I've ever seen it. Happily, happily, happily. Most of the key reforms, all the key reforms that we fought for in the gay rights movement have been achieved already. So this is, unless this so poisons the atmosphere that they're reversed, we can live through this. I'm not sure trans people will live through I think the way this is playing out is so horribly divisive and nasty. The difference between the civil rights movement in the past and this current one, this current one is never vulnerable, but always shrieks its vulnerability as a form of emotional blackmail. It's really, if I were in that position, making those arguments in that way, I would have no self-respect at all. And I don't know how they do it. You have to believe in some overarching systemic, you have to have some sort of Marxist construct to believe that's good, that all, everything is just power. Anyway, you got me started there. <laughs> that's quite all right. But you know, I've been vulnerable. I'm vulnerable, I could have been deported for 19 years of my life here mm-hmm. because I came out as HIV positive and was not allowed, I was not, strictly speaking, allowed to be here. And then I was at some point actually detained by US immigration in Canada and prevented coming back and told I had a year to leave. I've been through a lot of shit. 
And every time you go through that, you realize, I survived that. I can keep going. And so when the slings and arrows, the other thing I've learned is that over the years, if you keep at it, it's been three decades of me, that there is, even though those who disagree with me or loathe me, and there's a lot of hatred, very personal hatred for me everywhere. I think at least they say, well, at least he kept going for three decades. Give him credit for not completely giving up and folding. And trust me, there have been moments when I've really felt like doing that. And there was a moment in you know 2015 when I just I reached a point of emotional and physical exhaustion. Mm. I had to take a year to build my body and soul and mind and marriage and everything else back together to keep myself from being obliterated personally from this constant exposure and constant vitriol. I find that there is so much strength in vulnerability. And I think that the, I think what you articulated there, the difference between an authentic vulnerability and faux vulnerability that is just used as a kind of cudgel is important. It connects me to some of my favorite writers. I mean, I think one of the things about James Baldwin that I absolutely love is his ability to be unabashedly vulnerable about his own faults and misgivings. Politics to me is secondary. I mean, I, of course, will agree and disagree with people depending on their politics. But I remember when I read Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me, I was at a cafe here in Los Angeles. And I was sobbing like a child while I was reading it. Because even while I disagreed with some of the things that he wrote in the book, I was deeply moved by how he was talking about his own life. And I, I understood you know, in some small way, how difficult it is to put yourself up there for the slings and arrows of the people who will attack you. And if you'll allow me, I just want to read a, an extended passage from your essay alone again, naturally, which I feel is really relevant here. You write about how as a teen and a young man, you compartmentalized yourself as a sort of protective mechanism. You say, quote, so I resorted to what many young homosexuals and lesbians resort to. I found a way to expunge love from life, to construct a trajectory that could somehow explain this absence and to hope that what seemed so natural and overwhelming could somehow be dealt with. I studied hard to explain away my refusal to socialize. I developed intense intellectual friendships that bordered on the emotional, but I kept them restrained in a carapace of artificiality to prevent passion from breaking out. I adhered to a hopelessly pessimistic view of the world, which could explain my refusal to take part in life's pleasures and to rationalize the dark and deep depressions that periodically overwhelmed me." End quote. And I have to imagine, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Andrew, I have to imagine that that period of time in which you hid your true self and tried to bury it under layers of excuses about why you were acting a certain way had to have been connected somehow with your decision later as a writer to be your true self. Do I have that right? In a way, as I said earlier, the coming out itself mm. was that for me. So basically, I did everything I could intellectually, psychologically, spiritually, to resolve this stuff. Couldn't resolve it. And actually, that essay you quote from is an attempt to resolve it within the Catholic natural law tradition. In other words, to try and work within the system to explain why it wasn't working for me and for many people. Uh, and I went to places like Notre Dame and Boston College, big Catholic institutions, to make that argument. Ultimately meant, and also the lack of any love, and the fact that ten, for 10 years, as my testosterone was surging beyond measure, hmm. I did nothing but wank. <laughs> it broke. Hmm. It just couldn't. As I said, I've written, you can't, if you sustain a life like that, hmm. you die. Hmm. 
inside. Mm. And so many gay people and lesbian people in the past died inside at the expense of living in what they thought would be safety. And I just refused to let that happen to me. I could see it in my elders. I could see it in the faces of priests and professors and a whole number of people I otherwise really admired, but could see were utterly emotionally destroyed inside. And I just wasn't going to let that happen. I just wanted to live. And yes, I had these depressions, deep depressions and anxiety, and I won't even go into what I was going through with my family. You know, I had a mother in and out of mental institutions my whole childhood and adolescence, and a very dysfunctional marriage, which I was unfortunate enough to witness and be permanently scarred by at the same time. But I would say during this thing, I also was passionate about my scholarship, was passionate about acting. I was in so many different plays. I was public speaker at Oxford. I was president of the union. This was not a shut down person. Hmm. I was not permanently crippled by that. I was able to compartmentalize. And in those compartments where I was free, I was sure as hell free. Hmm. And I did also, I mean, I played Hamlet. I mean, I was able to do all these things that I love to do, but I wasn't deep down. I could tell none of that was going to fundamentally mm. make me. So the transition to, there's a, there's a great Pet Shop Boys song called Happiness is an Option. Yeah. And I think I chose happiness. Mm. And choosing happiness coincided with my arrival in America, which told me to pursue it hmm. as a core American identity. Yes. It's sure not part of the English identity. <laughs> it is, and it's, it's a hopelessly naive identity, as Americans have subsequently discovered. But again, it isn't the achievement of happiness that makes America different. It is the pursuit of it. Yes. Let's not get too simple here. I mean, you can be crushed and incredibly productive. I mean, Oscar Wilde was in absolute agony for much of his life, but look at what he did. In my view, Lincoln was, look at what he did, despite the crippling absence of any real emotional bond in his life. Yes. Except for one early love affair and apparently the White House honor guard. So far as we can tell, I think of many of the great homosexuals in history who must have lived with a great amount of pain, but were also found a way to live. Mm. And lived somewhat, I think we can be somewhat condescending to the past. We tend to think, well, before 1969, no one ever did anything about getting blah, blah, blah. Of course they did. Hmm. <laughs> of course we were there. We were there at the beginning of the church. We were there in the construction of the church. I didn't include in the book my piece, The Gay Church, which, which, which was difficult for me to exclude. But at, at some point I had to, I didn't want the book to be too gay. <laughs> That's the <what I> thing. <laughs> At the same time, I mean, I thought originally maybe doing a separate book just about my gay shit. Mm. First of all, the gay community wouldn't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> Secondly, the straight community or whoever else would be like, why is he just going on about this? So anyway. Are you familiar with, and apologies if this is a basic question, the works of Edward Hopper? Not really, no. Oh, I kept thinking about him as I was reading your work. He is Ooh. far and away my favorite American painter. Oh, if, if you mean the painter, yes, of course. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think you were referring to some kind of, when you said works, I thought you meant writer. Oh, no, <laughs> no the, uh, the artwork. 
I first came across him, I think somewhere around 2008, 2009. And I was really drawn to him because I feel like his work more than any other artist that I've been able to find anyway, a painter, captures a kind of loneliness that is really distinct because it shows how we can be alone while we're with other people. I mean, Nighthawks is probably his most famous piece. It's been replicated 8 million times. It's a diner for any listeners out there. It's that diner at night that's filled with atomized, disconnected people. But two of my favorite works of his, there's a 1939 painting called New York Movie, which shows a female usher standing alone in a hallway in an otherwise crowded theater. And my personal favorite, Automat, in which a young woman, I think she's dining underneath a fluorescent spotlight alone with her thoughts. And I feel like a writer's role, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Andrew. I feel like a writer's role, no matter what the topic is, is in many ways to be alone in a crowded room because you're both participant and observer. But your work specifically, I feel like, is infused with an added layer of loneliness. And I want to be clear on what I'm articulating here. I don't think loneliness as in you are lonely. At least I don't think generally you seem like a lonely person. Your stories are rich, in my opinion, with human interaction and warmth. But I think like a Hopper painting, you often seem alone in a crowded room, whether it's you know watching tragedy unfold in your life or merely being politically alone or homeless, either from conservatives or liberals. Is this something that you feel actively or is it just something that is manifesting in your writing that readers like myself pick up on? No, it's something I feel. I remember when I first walked into a gay bar, this was a long time ago before I'd written anything, and the difference I felt for everybody else, and even though I was absolutely like everybody else, I was dancing and meeting guys and totally thrilled to death to be there. There was a part of me still that was there that was looking at it as a writer, because I saw in front of me this amazing story that this reality, this gay reality, no one knew about. And least of all from the gays who had portrayed their lives in in, in a way that was utterly distortive of reality. Or if I'm at one of those big circuit parties, as as in some of those pieces, I'm, I'm dancing in a crowd, but utterly with my own thoughts. In a church, I am the gay one. Among conservatives, I'm sort of the gay one who won't fully obey, (laughs) or they like some stuff, but then I'm frustratingly different. Among liberals, I'm this weird right wing. Among leftists, I'm a white supremacist. In America, I'm English. In England, I was Catholic. There is no place that'll have me because that's who I am. So the goal really is to somewhat enlarge the space in which other people might live. So that just by being out there as a Catholic and as a gay person, I, prob- I know I made life a little easier for people who are in the same situation, which no one had previously really articulated. That is a great privilege as a writer. It's the calling of the writer to be alone in a crowd. As a writer, it doesn't mean as a human being you can leave that loneliness behind, but there is always the sense of, I'm watching the world around me, and I'm quite self-sufficient in that respect. And that's been the case just personally in, in terms of my personality for a very long time. I mean, from childhood onwards, I've always been the one the teacher would point out, why are you so quiet and silent? What are you thinking about? <laughs> um, and the question in my mind was, how was I going to, what was I going to do with this personality? Because I didn't see a very strong institutional commitment or an institution that would have me 
at least on the terms I would demand. And so I think in some ways the life I've lived, the career I've had is a function of that personality with all the various places I have been. And, you know, I think a lot of us are like this. You might call them the third culture kids, two people who are, I mean, Obama. Yes. I think this is one reason I bonded with him. Obama feels to me the same way. I had a real mind meld with that guy. <laughs> Even though I did my best not to get too chummy with him, hmm. I think I got him better than most people. I think so. Maybe you'd agree, I don't know. <laughs> Similar loneliness. In my case, impossible to go into politics with that. that. That I realized early enough. Even though part of me really wanted to, and part of me expected to. And certainly in Britain, before I left, that was the pathway I was going to almost certainly lead to. And I was a lot better than Boris at the union. <laughs> it took him three years to get elected. I got elected the first term of my second year. And I got a first, which he didn't. <laughs> we still think of these things when you're the same Oxford class. or well, not quite the same class, but same generation. I'm glad that you mentioned third culture kids. One of my exes was exactly that. American-born, ethnically Chinese, raised in China, and then back to the United States for college at 18. And she never really quite felt fully anything. And so when you talk about your connection with President Obama, I think for a lot of people just on the surface, they wouldn't really be able to make that connection, right? You've got a white British guy and a black biracial American guy (laughs) who have very different biographies, right? But there is a passage from your 2005 essay, The End of Gay Culture, that I think for me was a culmination of that feeling that I articulated in the previous question, and it all just came rushing forward to me. Because although I myself am not gay, I know gay people, I have gay friends, but there was something about this one passage. And I don't have a larger question here, but I really just want to get it on the record on this podcast because it is so moving for me personally that I just, I want to record it for posterity here. But I think it does capture, I think, what I feel is an emotional through line between you and someone like Barack Obama. You write in that essay, quote, After all, what separates homosexuals and lesbians from every other minority group is that they are born and raised within the bosom of the majority. Unlike Latino or Jewish or black communities where parents and grandparents and siblings pass on cultural norms to children in their most formative stages, each generation of gay men and lesbians grows up being taught the heterosexual norms and culture of their home environments or absorbing what passes for their gay identity from the broader culture as a whole, end quote. Now, in 2021, you know, a passage like that is probably going to seem a little bit foreign to gay kids, kids within the LGBT community today. But I think what it summarized so well was, correct me if I'm wrong here, but like gay and lesbian children and and queer children until modern times, very, very recently, were basically third culture kids born into an alien environment in which norms that were not their own were passed down to them. And it, it just you captured something that felt so alienating and lonely and something that I, as a straight person, could never have felt. And I guess I don't have a question there, Andrew. I just want to say thanks for writing it. Well, thank you. I I think you can see some consequences of that in in gay culture. I think part of the strength of gay men's ability to, to grasp aesthetics or the look of things is because we became highly attuned to the look of things in trying to figure out how we could disguise ourselves. Oh, wow. Because we could see the culture around us. It didn't make sense of us. 
And we, we had to calibrate very, very carefully how we presented ourselves and constantly repress and downplay. I mean, going through adolescence, when you obviously have these crushes and all the rest of it, you have to never, ever, ever give an inkling that that's how you feel. Now, you're right, I think, that things have gotten so much better. And part of my goal with marriage was simply to establish as a broad cultural social fact that a gay kid without any parents telling him or without any educator telling him or her, I can get married like my mom and dad and like my brother and sister one day. That itself, I think, healed a wound or helped heal the wound. But I will say this, I don't think it's over. I think that there's no way that ever in human society will the homosexual feel great from the get-go. Even if you passed every single law, well, we have basically passed every single law you could. Because there's something about inherent in the experience of being different, of being part of 2%, 3%, in a very profound area that will always lead the gay kid to be somewhat separate and a little bit circumspect. Not always, especially those of us who were able to just never be called out when we were kids for being gay because no one guessed. And those who were called out have another whole psychological profile, which I think has a lot to do with the divides within the adult gay community between those who were bullied and those who weren't, which is an interesting divide. I also want you to remember that so much of the world, it is still absolutely brutal for gay kids. Yes. And that's part of my irritation with the contemporary gay rights people in America is that they've lost perspectives. Like, we, we fucking won. Take yes for an answer. <laughs> Get on with your lives and maybe help people who really are dealing with unbelievable oppression. Uh, the idea that the Taliban can exist and people in America will say there's grotesque oppression against trans people seems to me to be almost an obscenity in terms of its lack of perspective. So anyway, I, what I'm basically saying is I don't think this will ever change completely. I think it can get a lot better and it has got a lot better. But I don't think, I think there is something intrinsic to the homosexual experience, which is somewhat capable of rendering you slightly apart from your peers in your formative years. Simple as that. It's gotten a lot better, hmm. but it will never be okay for most kids, because who wants to be the odd one out when you're 12? No one does. Hmm. And so that's always going to be there psychologically. It's going to be, and it may be, you know, a function of what we bring to the world, which is our observation, our skills of observation, hmm. of organization, of how the society works, of, of education, all these things that we have come slightly from that early experience of being somewhat displaced from where you are. Yes. That was a word I used in high school, displacement. And that struck me as the word that, that described my experience. I was very much part of the place, like my high school, very much, loved it. But I was somehow displaced within it internally. That is something difficult to articulate, especially to young people though, isn't it? Especially so in our modern moment, which is, obviously we want people to feel broadly accepted in society. We don't want people to be bullied for things they cannot change. But I think that there's something, there is something so valuable in also telling people sometimes difference is a strength. Because as you said, it allows you to see things in ways that other people could never see them. 
And whether that forwards your art or your creativity, or I think you can use it for anything. Having a different point of view to tackle a problem, to enter a situation can be intensely valuable. But it seems a very hard thing to balance, especially today, to tell people that, yes, we want society to be accepting of you, whatever you are, right? Whether it's sexuality or anything else, but that there can be value in being different and that the difference in and of itself is not a bad thing. No, absolutely. I feel obviously I agree with you there. Yeah. But also, and maybe we could end with this, that, that there is no perfect world out there that we've somehow missed. We in the West have, you know, it's a function of thousands of years of understanding of how human beings operate and the least worst option of organizing us in this manner. So that's it. <laughs> <laughs> There's no utopia. I remember, and I'll end with this anecdote I had when I met Oakshot, and we were talking about Christianity. And he told me that there was one essay that he had never written that he really should have, but it's too late now, he said. Mm. And he said he wanted to write an essay about the concept of salvation that has nothing whatsoever to do with the future. Oakshot has a very Taoist sensibility to him, which is a comfort in imperfection. In fact, an embrace of imperfection as the essential human condition and a comfort with it, because that's the way we are. And he put it in this way. I mean, after all, he said, who would want to be saved? Hmm. Once you realize there is no salvation on earth, also, if you realize that if there were, life would be interminably boring and essentially inhuman, you get to begin to live in reality, which in fact is a much saner way to live than this constant war against the reality you live in in favor of some abstract and utterly non-existent utopia. Oakshot's definition of a conservative temperament was someone who preferred present laughter to utopian bliss, which is why I think laughter is also this great element of a humanizing. And this is this is why like someone like Chappelle is great because what he's doing essentially mm. is tell us that this utopia is a fantasy. But that if you understand that it's a fantasy, you can live a better life, mm. a much happier life, a much less frustrating life. And the attempt to make the world perfect, you can spend your life trying to do that and never experience the world as it is, and love it. So that's, that's the temperament that, of course, a lot of people feel all the time. Because it's a very natural thing to feel. The world isn't perfect, but I love it. <laughs> My husband is a nightmare, but I love him. And sometimes <laughs> friendship, you know, friendship. Your friend. This the other key thing Oakshot said, was that you're friends with them, not despite their faults, mm but because of them. And I don't want to leave you on this, but, but I do think the collapse of Christianity as a, as a core way of looking at the world helps you understand, if properly understood in my view, how to live. I say in the piece, in Virtually Normal, politics cannot do the work of life. Only life can do the work of life. Do not think that a political movement is going to make you a homosexual somehow happier. It may be important, it will mitigate unhappiness, it will prevent future pain, it may give people the opportunity for some kind of psychic peace, 
But at some point, for example, that movement will achieve its goals. What are you doing then? What's the meaning of your life then? That, that living a life in these political ways or in this eternal quest for complete justice is inhuman and irrational and deeply bad for you. <laughs> and on that, I have to go. <laughs> I think that's very well said. In the spirit of equal opportunity, and you're, of course, welcome to decline, there is a final question that I ask every guest, and I'd love to ask it to you if you have the time. Okay. We're limited in our time, our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned and caring person can't be thinking of everyone else, every other group of people all the time. It's just impossible, right? There's so many hours in the day. So is there someone, Andrew, or a group of people in your life or in the larger world right now that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to? Not a group. No. Insofar as I have empathy, it's, it's humans, regardless of their group. And generally speaking, with humans I know, which is where we start from. And empathy requires another human being to empathize with. You can't empathize with an abstraction. So you start from the basics. You start with your friends. You start with their friends. You start with strangers sometimes in your everyday interaction. The Christian view, I think, is that that's what matters, that these abstract goals, although you can, but, but ultimately you'll be judged by how you interact with other humans. Who did you take care of? Who did you listen to? Who did you make way for? Who did you offer a little bit of dignity to? Who did you forgive? That's where it starts and ends. Yes, we can and should change our society in ways that we think can make things a little better. And I think I spend a lot of my life trying to do that. But it's not what's going to, if anything, gets me into heaven. It's the way we interact with each other. That's what I get from the Gospels. And politics is, politics is not a field in which that comes easy. It can be, of course, you can develop friendships. and all, But that's a different question than political movements. So that's what I would say. Well, thank you for your time, Andrew. And thank you so much for your work. I really appreciate it. I'm so grateful to have such an empathetic and intelligent reader. That's what we live for as writers. So thank you. <laughs>